Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. U.S. and its allies are going to ramp up military aid to Ukraine. So the U.S. and its NATO allies are holding a series of meetings this week in Europe where new pledges for military aid to Ukraine are expected to be made and more countries might agree to arm Kiev with tanks. So NATO defense ministers are set to meet in Brussels on Wednesday and Thursday, followed by a meeting on Friday in Germany of what they call the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. So that includes, you know, NATO officials, but also military officials from non-NATO countries. It's usually, there's usually officials there representing about 50 countries, according to what they say. And Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, he's been chairing these meetings, you know, since the, since early on in the war. And usually, you know, they announce some new military aid during them or after and uh, Blinken, the Secretary of State, he previewed what is to come uh, in these coming days during a press conference with his British counterpart in Washington on Tuesday. He said that there's going to be more announcements on military aid and that the U.S. is coordinating with many countries on this, this new military aid that's coming. Blinken said that the role the U.S. should play right now is to, quote, put Ukraine in the strongest position when a negotiating table emerges so that there can be a just and durable peace, end quote. So he says, when a negotiating table emerges. Um, but right now, there's no sign of a negotiating table emerging as Ukraine is demanding you know, their conditions for talks. They want Russia to withdraw, and they also want a war crimes tribunal before talks can even happen. And then you have the Russian side. They say that they're open to talks, but they also say Ukraine must recognize the realities on the ground and they want any deal to recognize Russia's annexation of the territory that it has captured in Ukraine. Right now, you know, the only chance for peace talks is if the U.S. pushed Kiev to the negotiating table. Basically, they would have to say, all right, it's over. You know, you're not getting more aid or or they could say, you know, it's ending soon. You have to start talking. But the Biden administration has shown no interest in backing down. You know, it's full steam ahead. And this is some more, you know, we're going to see more of that this week with this new military aid. So Blinken recognized that there's no end to the fighting in sight. And he said at this press conference that he expects the war to go on for some time. So he was speaking uh, with British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, and he also said at this press conference that the Western powers need to intensify military aid for Ukraine to prevent a stalemate. He said, quote, we can't allow this to drag on and become a kind of first world war attritional type stalemate, end quote. So Cleverly's trip to the U.S., this was in Washington, it comes after the British. They pledged to send 14 of their Challenger 2 tanks to Ukraine, and Ukraine is hoping that other Western nations will follow London's lead. So right now, Poland, as well as Finland, too, they've come out and said that they are willing to send Ukraine their German-made Leopard 2 tanks, but the plan needs to still, still needs to be signed off by Berlin. Some German officials have said, you know, they won't get in the way, 
Um, so Germany is expected to approve it, I think. And I this is going to be a major topic of discussion during these meetings. And that's when we might see them sign off on it. Um, all right. The next article here, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he meets with Ukraine's top commander in Poland. So Milley on Tuesday met with Valery Zelushny. He's the commander of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. They met at an undisclosed location in Poland near the Ukrainian border. So this is a highly symbolic meeting. Uh, you know, these two have been coordinating and talking uh, on the phone throughout the war, but this is the first time that they've met face-to-face. And uh, Colonel David Butler, who was a U.S. military spokesman, he told the Washington Post that they spent a few hours together. So the meeting was arranged after it became clear that Zelushny would not be able to attend the uh, NATO meetings in Brussels that are going to be held this week that I just talked about. Apparently he was going to try to go, but it, it didn't work out. So Millie decided to go over there and meet with him. And Millie made the trip after visiting Ukrainian troops in Germany as they started a new expanded U.S. training program that I went over yesterday. And again, you know, this stuff I think is very symbolic of the U.S. role in the war. Millie going to basically inspect Ukrainian troops and then going to meet face to face with the, the Ukrainian commander. Um, and there's no details really. We don't really know what they talked about. Butler, the U.S. spokesman, said that Millie wanted to discuss the training programs and also Ukraine's military needs. So Millie got a sense of what uh, Zelushny said he needed, and he's going to take that to Brussels and to Germany for those meetings. Now, Zelushny has previously said, I forget the exact numbers. I know tanks. He says he needs 300 and uh, you need 700 armored infantry fighting vehicles and a bunch of howitzers as well. And Ukraine's not getting, you know, nearly those numbers when it comes to that equipment, especially the tanks. Right now, just Britain said they would send 14. We'll see what the other NATO allies come up with this week. Um, but and Zelushny said, you know, that's what he needs if he if he wants to have a chance of driving Russia out of Ukraine. Um, so I'm sure he told. Millie, you know, something similar that he needs all this stuff that he's not getting. Um, so uh, Millie, again, he met those Ukrainian troops training in Germany. And then also this week, that training program started, but uh, about 100 Ukrainian troops arrived in the U.S. this week, arrived in Oklahoma to begin their training on Patriot air defense missile systems. And this is the first program uh, being held on U.S. soil since Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, the first that we know about, you know, that's specifically uh, training them to use a particular type of weapon system. So again, and in, in this article, I just mentioned that Millie, he's going to be attending these meetings in Brussels and in, in uh, Germany, where we're going to see more pledges for military aid. So again, you know, full steam ahead. And now we have to wonder how sustainable this, this is, as the U.S. is sending so many weapons and so much ammunition to Ukraine. And this next article here, uh, Pentagon sends U.S. artillery shells stored in Israel and South Korea to Ukraine. So the U.S. has dipped into stockpiles of arms that it keeps in Israel and South Korea to supply Ukraine with more artillery shells. This is from the New York Times, citing anonymous U.S. and Israeli officials. 
The stockpile in Israel is meant to supply the U.S. for its conflicts in the Middle East, and Israel also is able to use it in some cases. Um, and between the two stockpiles, the U.S. has shipped hundreds of thousands of artillery shells to Ukraine, as Kiev's war effort is entirely reliant on the flow of U.S. ammunition. And it's a artillery war. You know, they're using a ton of this stuff. Uh, and Israel, they haven't shipped weapons of their own to Ukraine. And apparently they were initially concerned about the U.S. shipping these ar this artillery from Israel to Ukraine. Uh, but they went ahead and did it. I guess Israel doesn't want to look like, you know, they're, they're taking Ukraine's side too much here. And we know the Netanyahu government is going to be less publicly critical of Russia than the previous government. Um, U.S. and Israeli officials told the Times that about half of these, of 300,000 shells that are bound for Ukraine have already been shipped to Europe and will enter Ukraine through Poland. So I guess that's from the Israel stockpile. They shipped it to Europe already. And since Russia invaded Ukraine, the U.S. has pledged to send Kiev over 1,155,000 artillery shells, over a million rounds. And that's just one type of, of artillery ammunition that they've been sending. And a senior U.S. official told the Times that a good portion of that number, although less than half, is being shipped from these stockpiles in Israel and South Korea. So the revelation, it demonstrates how supporting the war in Ukraine is depleting U.S. military stockpiles. Although, you know, we always do have to wonder about these stories that maybe this is an effort kind of to justify more weapons production. But at the same time, you know, U.S. weapons makers and the U.S. Army as well have big plans. They've announced they're taking steps to really ramp up production. Uh, and it's a matter of how much they can crank out uh, that, you know, the U.S. is going to use everything or send everything to Ukraine that they make or use it for themselves. They want to replenish their stockpiles that they sent to Ukraine uh, to higher levels than before they sent them over there. So again, there's just this huge demand for weapons and ammunition. Uh, but there have been some U.S. military leaders, including the Secretary of the Navy, that warned it may be hard to arm both Ukraine and the U.S. as the war drags on. And according to this New York Times report, Ukraine is using an average of 90,000 rounds of artillery each month, which is more than double what the U.S. and Europe can produce. So there's a big gap there. Uh, and this signals that the policy of supporting Kiev's war effort may be unsustainable. And it could mean that Russia is kind of just waiting them out. Uh, all right. So the next one here, Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State, has changed his position. And he says now that Ukraine should join NATO. So Kissinger said this in a video address to the World Economic Forum. They're holding their meeting in Davos, Switzerland. This was on Tuesday. Uh, and he said that Ukraine joining NATO would be an appropriate outcome of the war, reversing his previous position that Kiev should not join the military alliance. He said, quote, before this war, I was opposed to membership of Ukraine in NATO because I feared that it would start exactly the process that we have seen now. Now that this process has reached its level, the idea of a neutral Ukraine under these conditions is no longer meaningful, end quote. So I guess he's saying, oh, we've gotten to this point. Um, and, you know, I think Ukraine's defense minister makes a good point when he says that Ukraine is a de facto NATO member. And I think you could have made that argument even before the invasion, which is a ma was a major uh, factor, uh, a major motive for Putin to launch the war. 
So Kissinger's comments reflect an article that he wrote for The Spectator last month. And in this article, he did not explicitly say that Ukraine should join NATO, but argued that a peace process should link Ukraine to NATO, however that's expressed. And that's him shifting his position earlier in the war. He said Ukraine should be neutral. For many years before that, he said the same thing. Um, so in that Spectator article, which was interesting, he also he called for negotiations to avoid another world war. And he also suggested that referendums could be held to settle disputes over some of the territory that Russia has captured. Um, but his opinion appears to have changed at, you know, in his address on Tuesday. He still called for talks with Moscow, but he said that the fighting should only end after Russia is pushed back to the pre-invasion lines. So saying, you know, there should be dialogue, but the fighting has to go on until Russia's pushed out. So, uh, you know, he's falling in line, it seems like, with the Biden administration, with, with, the, uh, with the Hawks. And the chance of negotiations, again, I mean, I, I said this in the already earlier, just about how the chances of negotiations are so slim. But Kissinger did say that the conflict should be kept from becoming a war against Russia itself. I think one could argue that it already is a war against Russia, you know, in the mind of the Hawks in the U.S. and NATO. But he also said after the war, Russia should be given an opportunity to rejoin the international system. And that breaks from the more hawkish side of NATO. Jen Stoltenberg, the secretary general, he said, you know, keep sanctions. They shouldn't become a member of the international community, as they call it, after the war. Um, and it's funny because Kissinger, he angered, you know, the W the world economic economic forum um he didn't so much anger them I, i'm sure he angered people among them that group but uh his address to the world economic forum angered a lot of ukrainian officials he suggested then that ukraine should cede crimea and the territory that separatists controlled in the donbass before russia's invasion and that might still be his position he's just saying that russia has to get pushed back to those points before um talks can happen. Uh, all right. So I just want to take this moment to mention again, it's our fundraiser at antiwar.com and we could really use your help to uh, keep things going here. You know, this is how we get by. This is how I'm able to provide you with this coverage. Uh, we're entirely reader funded and we have gotten a lot of great endorsements recently. We still have that letter from John Mearsheimer at the top of the page. So you can go check that out. Go to antiwar.com slash donate and you'll see the different ways you can support us. Um, and there's a number there. You could always call Angela Keaton uh, and, and speak with her about your donation. Um, you know, and I'm usually pretty easy to get a hold of too. You could always email me or, or drop me a line on Twitter or something like that if you want to talk. Uh, but again, antiwar.com slash donate. Please help us out uh, so we can get this fundraiser over with and focus on our work. All right, the next article here. Ukrainian volunteers say that they were unprepared for the battle around Bakhmut. So this is um, kind of goes against the narrative that Russia, that Ukraine is winning um, because it appears that Ukrainian soldiers are taking very heavy losses on the battlefield. And Ukrainian volunteers detailed in comments to the Times, this is the Times of London, the British newspaper, how they were unprepared to fight Russian forces near the city of Bakhmut in the Donetsk Oblast, where the two sides have been locked in, in heavy battles for months and months. And the report came after Russia's Wagner group said that it took Solidar. Um, after that, 
Ukrainian officials disputed that, but then Russian forces came in, regular Russian forces, it looks like, and it, and Russia does control that town. It's a small town about three miles north, northeast of Bakhmut, and Ukrainian volunteers told the Times that they were supposed to hold the line in the area, but they were not armed with any of the advanced equipment the U.S. and NATO have been pouring into the country. One volunteer told the Times, quote, we had our Kalashnikov rifles and a few grenades and that was it. If we had if we had, had night vision goggles or something like that, we might have been able to see the Russians, end quote. So they were ordered to withdraw from the area and Russia's capture of Solodar could help Russian forces encircle Bakhmut. Then I put in an interesting quote from the Wall Street Journal. This is from an article last week. Um, it said that some Western and Ukrainian officials were worried that Ukraine was sacrificing too many soldiers and resources to hold on to this city of Bakhmut. The report reads, quote, Western and some Ukrainian officials, soldiers and, anal and analysts increasingly worry that Kiev has allowed itself to be sucked into the battle for Bakhmut on Russian terms, losing the forces it needs for a planned spring offensive as it stubbornly clings to a town of limited strategic relevance, end quote. Um, so it looks like there's some doubts in the West that, uh, you know, Ukraine is succeeding. And one Ukrainian commander told the journal that the, the casualty rate might not be sustainable. He said, quote, so far, the exchange rate of trading our lives for theirs favors the Russians. If this goes on like this, we could run out, end quote. So that is an important point that Russia, you know, has a lot more bodies that they could throw at this war than Ukraine does. And it's unclear how many casualties there have been in the war. Both sides have been offering such vastly different estimates. Um, but it was interesting back in October, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he said that both Russian and Ukrainian forces have suffered well over 100,000 casualties, including both dead and wounded. And what he said, you know, what the headline there was in the Western media is that Russia has suffered over 100,000 casualties. And I don't know if that's anywhere near true. I really have no idea how many casualties the Russian side is, uh, is, is, has been dealing with, but it does seem like Ukraine's taking a lot of heavy losses um, so it's interesting that he said both. And then also the EU, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, she also said that over 100,000 Ukrainian troops have died, I think she said. And then she said it in an EU speech and Ukrainian officials got angry and they cut it from her speech. Um, but anyway, all right, the next one here is pretty much all Ukraine stuff so far. Uh, Zelensky advisor quits after comments on Dnipro strike caused backlash. So this is Aletsky. Aristovich, he submitted his resignation as an advisor to the Ukrainian president on Tuesday after comments he made about a Russian missile hitting an apartment building in Dnipro. After the strike, which took place on Saturday, uh, Aristovich said that the Russian missile that hit the building may have fallen after it was shot down by Ukrainian air defenses. So his comments drew heavy criticism in Ukraine, leading him to say that, you know, he was kind of defending his comments for a few days saying that, you know, nobody's going to blame Ukraine for the incident since it happened as Russia was bombarding the country. Um, and then the Kremlin, they denied that Russian forces targeted the apartment building, and they pointed to Aristovich's comments uh, saying that, uh, you know, Ukrainian officials have made statements 
saying that it could have been caused by the air defense. Um, and Ukrainian military officials denied that their air defenses shot down the missile. They said that it was a KH-22 anti-ship missile. They insisted that Ukrainian forces don't have the capability to intercept them. According to Ukrainian authorities, the strike on the building killed 44 people, including five children. Um, Aristovich, he ultimately apologized for his remarks and submitted a resignation letter on Tuesday. He said in his apology that he was sorry, quote, to the victims and their relatives, the residents of the Dnieper and everyone who was deeply wounded by my premature error version of the reason the Russian missile hit a residential building, end quote. Sounds like he's saying he was wrong, but who knows with all this backlash. Um, But it does show, you know, again, you know, what he said that, you know, people aren't going to blame Ukraine for the incident, you know, especially when it comes to Ukraine's, you know, Western supporters, because it did happen as Russia was bombing the country um, that, you know, speaking out of line like that just got got so much backlash in Ukraine and he had to resign. Um, And I'm not sure if he really had an official position, uh, you know, in the Ukrainian government, but he was an advisor to Zelensky. Uh, He also did hit back at the criticism, saying that the level of hate thrown at him is incomparable with the consequences of what of what he said. So, um, you know, again, it's it's interesting what happens um, to someone in Ukraine that doesn't, you know, really toe the line. Okay, the next article, uh, Saudi Arabia, this is from the Middle East. I say that they're open to trading in currencies beside the U.S. dollar. So this was also at the World Economic Forum on Tuesday. Uh, in Davos, uh, in an interview with Bloomberg, this was Saudi Arabia's finance minister, Mohammed El Jadan. He said, quote, there are no issues with discussing how we settle our trade arrangements, whether it is in the U.S. dollar, whether it is the euro, whether it is the Saudi real, end quote. Um, so his comments are likely to spark speculation. There's already been a lot of speculation about this, about Saudi Arabia's willingness to conduct oil sales in the Chinese uh, yuan. During a visit to Gulf, to the Gulf in December, Chinese President Xi Jinping told Arab leaders that Beijing would push to buy oil and gas in Chinese currency as it looks to position its currency for use in international trade. Saudi Arabia, like other Gulf states, has pegged its currency to the dollar for decades. Oil sales across the globe are priced in U.S. dollars. China accounts for more than a quarter of Saudi Arabia's crude exports. So if the kingdom were to move toward a petro yuan, it could dent the dollar's status as the world's reserve currency. Um, So, you know, the petrodollar, it it is a major aspect of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. It's part of the reason why the U.S. placates the Saudis so much. And, you know, this really is, you know, the U.S.'s own doing, uh, isolating China and Russia. Um, And we've seen an increase in trade with other currencies, um, including, you know, Russia's currency. They, I believe they're trading, uh, using rubles with India, uh, when trading oil. So it would take some time to knock down the the dollar as the world's currency, but, you know, steps like this could lead in that direction. And I think also at the same time, the Saudis say stuff like this and they meet with Xi Jinping and, and, say all these nice things about him kind of to play off the U S and say, see, you got to give us what we want. Um, so that's the cost of having a dollar backed by, uh, you know, not backed by gold or anything. 
okay, so the next one, I just left up the one from yesterday about Saudi airstrikes killing 155 Yemeni civilians in 2022. And then the last story in the news section, the U.S. and Taiwan conclude four days of trade talks in Taipei. So U.S. and Taiwanese officials concluded these talks on Tuesday as the two sides near a trade initiative that will likely anger Beijing. So the talks were held in Taipei and the U.S. delegation was led by Terry McCartan, the assistant U.S. trade representative for China Affairs. And this marks a very rare visit to the island, the first one that I'm aware of by an official in President Biden's executive office. That's where the trade representative, uh, that's where their position is. So the U.S. and Taiwan announced that they were launching trade talks last year, and the meetings in Taiwan marked the second round of in-person negotiations. Of course, China has warned against them signing a trade deal as they view such cooperation as an affront to the one-China policy. So it's not. Um, it looks like they're going to hold more negotiations. In a readout of the talks, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative said that the two sides exchanged views on proposed texts covering trade facilitation anti-corruption, small and medium-sized enterprises, good regulatory practices, and services domestic regulation. So no deals were signed, but the officials agreed to continue negotiations. Analysts told the South China Morning Post that any trade deal between the U.S. and Taiwan would be mainly symbolic, but it would still risk angering China. And that's really the bottom line when it comes to this, these talks. And I think it's just about trying to kind of counter China, uh, use Taiwan against China. It seems to be the U.S. plan here. Uh, but that's it for the um, news. You can go check out our viewpoints. We have a lot of good ones, as always. One from Michelle Plitnik, Biden's dangerous move to deepen ties with Israel. This is over at Mondo Weiss, which is a great resource for news on uh, Israel and Palestine. Just say no to the new forever war. This is from Joseph um, Solis Mullen over at the Mises Institute. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Paul w, w. Lovinger, MLK preached nonviolence to observe birthday. Our violent president gave a guest sermon. This is uh, from us, and it's what Biden said to celebrate the minister um daniel larison i believe this is yeah responsible statecraft turns out the rethink was a threat not a promise in the u.s saudi spat this is something i covered that basically all that tough talk about there being consequences for saudi arabia after the you know OPEC oil cuts was just a lot of talk and they decided not to actually do anything then one one from branco march teach Diplomatic cables show Russia saw NATO expansion as a red line. This is over at the America Committee for the U.S.-Russia Accord. This is a very thorough uh, piece about, you know, how we got here and uh, how the Russians made, made it clear that NATO expansion was a red line, especially when it came to Ukraine and Georgia. Uh, but that's it for me for today. Again, it's our fundraiser. Go to antiwar.com slash donate to help us out. Get us through it. Um, also like, and subscribe to the show on YouTube, share it around. If you listen to the audio version, you could leave a review or something like that. That's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.